Lord God, we are weak and we need your help. Uh, we are, have a sinful flesh that wishes to distract and be uh, taken over by concerns and worries and, and other thoughts. Lord, we have the devil and his angels seeking to snatch away your word. We have a weakness in our flesh where we cannot understand, and so we need your spirit. Lord, we need him as we look at your word, that we might understand and that we might grow in our knowledge of you, and even more than that, that that knowledge and that understanding would sink into our hearts and not just uh, sit in our brains, but that it would shape us and mould us and conform us to the image of your Son, that we might glorify you and live lives worthy of the calling to which you've called us. And so we pray that you'd help us, help me, uh, and be with us now. In Jesus' name, amen. So we're looking at Ephesians chapter uh, 1, verses 15, through to chapter 2, verse 7. But I would like to start with a Christmas passage. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who is born king of the Jews? For we have seen his star in the east and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. That's from Matthew chapter 2. You see, the topic of our sermon tonight, uh, not tonight, sorry, preach this one night and we've got, still got tonight written here. Uh, the topic of our sermon this morning makes kings troubled. In recent days we've had much ado about the US presidential elections and it's an important moment, right? The US president is one of the most powerful men in the world, but the topic of our sermon this morning should make Joe Biden troubled. It should make him nervous. It should make our government nervous. It should make you troubled. Here is the message. Here is the sermon in a sentence. Jesus is the human king over all creation. I think you should have got that by now from the, the rest of the service. But Jesus right now is king of the cosmos. Not just the world, not just a country, everything. The universe the human realm, the spiritual realm, Jesus is the king. And that should make us think twice. So, let's have a look at Ephesians. In verse 15, which is where we'll start, we find Paul praying for the Ephesians. In verse 17, he tells you, what he's praying for. Oh, this is verse 15 to 17. For this reason, this is from the ESV, for this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. And this is why he's praying. This is the, what he prays for. That the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him. Paul wants the Ephesians to know more of the salvation that God has revealed to us. 
In the first part of chapter 1, verses 3 to 14, Paul has explained this incredible plan of redemption. He's outlined salvation and how it all works, but he keeps praying for the Ephesians that they would know more. He's not done. He wants them to dig and delve deeper. He wants you to know more. Paul wants you to explore the depths, the hope, the riches, the immeasurable greatness of the salvation that God has won for you in Christ. It's not enough to know the basics of the gospel. That shouldn't satisfy us. It it doesn't satisfy Paul. Paul wants us to dig, to delve deeper into the richness of what God has done in Christ. And so, to help the Ephesians understand something of God's power towards them, he tells them, this is what God's power has already done. Let me show you a case study, he says. If you want to know how powerful God's work is in your salvation, look at this case study in verses 19 to 23. He says, and I want you to know what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his great might, which he worked in Christ. So the same power that he's working in you is the power which he worked in Christ. When he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above every far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. So if you ask Paul, well, how can I know more of God's power in salvation? Paul would tell you about two key moments in Jesus' life. He'd say, this is the sort of power that God works in you. Firstly, when God rose Jesus from the dead. That's the Easter story. Jesus died on the cross where he took the wrath of God on behalf of his people so that all who believe in him would not receive punishment but instead would receive eternal life. That's one moment of power that he points to. The second moment he points to is the ascension and the enthronement of Jesus. God raised him up and seated him in the heavenly places And this is the part that we're interested in today. What he says, when Jesus was raised up and placed at the right hand of the Father, that is God's power on display that we should look at to see the sort of power that he works in us. Now, we should ask a question at this point. If Jesus is the Son of God incarnate, very God of very God, Doesn't he rule everything anyway? As God, isn't he the rightful king of everything anyway? Why why is it so powerful for God to place Jesus as king over all? How is that a display of God's power? Well, the answer is, in the song that we just saw, the answer is that in becoming a man, Jesus humbled himself. Philippians tells us that Jesus was equal with God, but he gave that up in a sense. He veiled it. He's veiled his glory and he made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant coming in the likeness of a man. He chose to humble himself. And once he'd humbled himself and taken on human flesh, he then had to prove that he was worthy of being the human king of creation. 
And that's what he did. He obeyed where Adam did not. And so God elevated him and sat him on God's throne as the God-man. And that's why this is so incredible. Because Jesus is seated on the throne today of all the cosmos as a man. It's easy to think of him ruling as God. But right now there's a human, flesh and blood human being ruling the cosmos. The God-man Jesus Christ. And that takes power. This displays God's power because only someone incredibly powerful could place a man in charge of everything that's ever been made. When we think back to the empires in the ancient world, we're amazed at their power very often. I mean, you think of Nebuchadnezzar, who ruled a huge portion of the known world, basically most of the Asian continent. Or consider that the British Empire, which I recently discovered, was the largest empire ever. It covered 22% of the Earth's landmass and 20% of all the Earth's population. One in five people were under the British Empire at one point. But none of these empires, none of them, were powerful enough to place one man in charge of the whole world. And none of them was powerful enough to make sure they stayed there. Every single human ruler in our history has come and gone. But God displays his power in placing Jesus, the God-man, over all things forever. And that's what's so amazing here. So let's dig into verses 20 to 22 a bit more. Firstly, we see that Jesus is seated at the right hand of God. In verse 20, the great power that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. In the Bible, the right hand is a place of honor, shared authority, and judgment. It's an idea that's all through the Bible and it's also through the the ancient world. Kings would have visiting dignitaries sit at their right hand and people would treat them with the same respect that they would treat the king. It's a position of great honour and authority. That this is Jesus' position is evident from the further description that Paul gives of Jesus' rule. He seated him in his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all principality and power and might and dominion. Get the point. (laughs) Four times he comes up with different words. And every name that is named, not only in this age, but that which is to come. And he put all things under his feet. Jesus is placed over every principality. That word is the idea of a ruler. There's not a ruler that exists that Jesus hasn't been placed over. Joe Biden is underneath the rule of Christ. Chairman Jinping of China is underneath the rule of Christ. Jesus is above every power. That word carries the idea of authority, delegated power. It's referring to human or spiritual authorities. People or beings who have been given different areas of dominion. Judges, governments, military authorities, demons, angels. Jesus has been put above them all. Jesus has been placed above every might. That word's about strength. No one has any strength that can be Jesus. 
He's the strongest king. The, the kings of the earth might rise up against him and think they have power to break their bonds. But what does Jesus do? He laughs at them. Is what Psalm 2 tells us. And Jesus is above every dominion. That word refers to an idea of ownership. Jesus is above all, all ownership. Yeah, the idea is sort of, if you think about a, a kid, a child of yours who has a, a toy, you might give that child the toy and say, that's your toy. But in reality, you own the toy. You're just sort of lending it to them while they're underneath you for a while. Because you're the Lord of your house, you're the Lord of your child. That's what it means that Jesus is above every dominion. So Paul uses these four words that all have similar meanings to capture the complete extent of Jesus' rule and reign. He doesn't just rule earthly kings, he rules spiritual rulers as well. Nothing and no one anywhere escapes his rule. And this position that Jesus is placed in is not just for a time. All other rulers are given a time and once their time's up, their rule is up, but Jesus rules not only in this age, but in the age which is to come. This age refers to the time between Jesus' ascension and his return, and when he comes again uh, and is seated at the right hand of God, um, that rule won't end. When Jesus comes again, that rule won't end. It will continue for all eternity. Jesus is enthroned above the cosmos right now, and he's here to stay. And lastly, God has placed all things under his feet. Can you see the emphasis that Paul's putting on this, this rule? In, in Ephesus, in fact, there's some years after Paul wrote this letter, there's a statue that was built of the Roman emperor Trajan. Uh, one part of that statue remains even today. You can go there and see it. And it's just the emperor's feet. And underneath one of his feet is a globe which symbolizes the world. That's how the Emperor Trajan saw himself, with the world under his feet. Now, Trajan never owned the whole world, even though he wanted to think he did, and he certainly doesn't own it all now. But the statue gets at the idea, doesn't it? This is what Jesus is like. He has the world underneath his feet, in complete subjection to him. Abraham Kuyper summed this up well, when he famously said, there's not a square inch in the whole domain of human existence over which Christ, who is Lord over all, does not exclaim, mine. Perhaps you're familiar with the gospel. Perhaps you've heard several times about how Jesus died and rose again so that all who believe on him will have eternal life. The death and resurrection of Christ is certainly the heart of the gospel message, but it isn't all of it. See, there are two major implications of Jesus' ascension and enthronement for every one of us here this morning. First, you need to understand that you will submit to Jesus, one way or the other. Sometimes we hear a preacher tell us about how Jesus died for our sins and we need to believe on him, we can think as we hear that, that Jesus is waiting and, and begging us to come. The ball's in our court and we get to evaluate and decide whether or not we want to accept Jesus. But that isn't really the case. Jesus isn't begging you 
to repent and believe. He commands you to repent and believe. And he doesn't command you to do that today because he really hopes you'll join his team. He commands you to repent and believe today and to willingly submit to him as king as a mercy. Like a conquering king would come and give his enemies one chance to bow before his rule, before exterminating the rebels. The offer of the gospel is like that. You don't make Jesus king of your life when you repent and believe. Jesus is the king of your life right now. You are under his feet. He rules you right now this morning. And this morning he's extending his scepter of peace to you. Inviting you to willingly submit to his rule. But if you don't submit today, the Bible is clear that you will unwillingly submit to Jesus on another day. Philippians says, at the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow and every tongue confess on the earth, in heaven, under the earth, everyone will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So as a preacher, as an ambassador of the King, I can tell you this morning that you must repent and believe in Jesus Christ, the King. He is the victorious King. He will one day come to deal with rebels who do not bow down to Him. Today He offers peace. Tomorrow, judgment. So today, if you hear his voice, do not harden him. Do not harden your heart. Secondly, the second implication is that the fact that Jesus is king should cause us great comfort. The world might look topsy-turvy out there. You might watch what's happened over 2020 and wonder who's driving this bus. But when you trust the driver, when you know who the driver is, even the windiest, scariest route becomes less scary. This is how John Newton put it when considering the political turmoil. He, he was living around the time of the American Civil War and he was watching, sorry, the War for Independence, and he was uh, watching the turmoil from England and he said, there's only one political maxim that comforts me. You know, as we're... As we vote, I wonder what, what comforts you? What, what are you hoping for? What would you be comfortable with when it comes to politics? What would make you satisfied? This is what John Newton said. There's only one political maxim which comforts me. The Lord reigns. He continued, men have one thing in view. He has another. And his counsel will stand. Christian, you, you worship a crucified saviour. But that crucified Saviour didn't stay crucified. Jesus raised him up to reign over every aspect of creation. And if you keep reading, you'll see that he did this for the sake of you, for the sake of the church. God raised him up and placed him above all 
and then gave him as the head of all things to the church, which is his body. Think of it. Jesus loved you so much that he took on flesh, lived, suffered, died for you. And now God has endowed him with universal authority. What do you think he's going to do with that? What's he going to do with that power and authority that he's been given? Won't he use it to bring about the salvation and the safety of his people? The people he loves with his own blood, the people he loves with an everlasting love? Christian, whatever situation you're facing, whatever difficulty there is in your life, whether it's a large-scale thing like the laws of our governments, you think of the, the Victorian law that they're currently put before Parliament, which will make praying for someone who's struggling with sexual sin a crime. Maybe that's something that, that you're worried about. Or maybe it's small-scale. Maybe it's tension in your family. A sin in your life you can't seem to gain victory over. A boss who makes going to work unbearable. Well, Jesus has it in hand. In fact, he's put you in this situation. And he's, he has all the resources at his disposal to bring you through it and to produce holiness in you as he does. Won't he do that? for the people who he loves. Your saviour hasn't left you alone. He's intimately involved in your life to increase your faith and to produce holiness and to bring you safely home. So whatever difficulty or trial you're facing at this point, trust him. Cling to him. Call out to him. He is a good king, a king who loves you and who has the power to save you. John Payton, the missionary to Vanuatu, held fast to this truth. He went to a, a, an island nation where there were cannibals. And with his life in constant danger from these man-eating men, he wrote... I knew not for one brief hour when or how attack against my life might come. Imagine living with that sort of fear. And yet, he says, with my trembling hand clasped in the hand once nailed to Calvary and now swaying the scepter of the universe. What a wonderful picture. The hand once nailed to Calvary, now swaying the scepter of the universe with his hand clasped in that one, calmness and peace and resignation abode in my soul. So, God has placed a man, Jesus Christ, as the highest ruler over all, and this should cause us great peace and calm in the face of turmoil. But it doesn't stop there. Remember, Paul wants the Ephesians to dig into the depths of God's great plan of salvation. And to do this, he says, look at the case study, look at Jesus Christ. God raised him from the dead and made him the king of kings. And then in Ephesians chapter 2, he shows you how that helps you dig into the riches of his grace toward you. In verses 1 to 3 of chapter 2, he tells us that we are by nature dead 
in trespasses and sins. And this means that we live under the kingship of the prince of the power of the air. This results in us living however we want, conducting ourselves in the lusts of the flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind. We are dead children of wrath. What hope do we have? Well, remember the great power of God? What was the first thing he did in demonstrating his power in Christ? He raised him from the dead. And that's exactly what he does to us. In verse 5 of chapter 2. Even when we were dead in our trespasses, God made us alive together with Christ. Just as God acted in power to raise Jesus from the dead, so he powerfully works to raise people from their spiritual death. And what's incredible is that God doesn't stop there. Just like he powerfully worked to place Jesus as the human king over all creation, so in verse 6, he raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ's Jesus. And what do you think we're sitting on as we're raised up together with Christ and seated in the heavenly places together in him? Well, we're sitting on what he's sitting on, a throne. Jesus is not a king who just wants to lord it over subjects. He offers to share his throne. That wording again, he made us sit together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. God sits the God-man Jesus on the throne next to him, and then he raises up his people from their spiritually dead state and sits them next to him on his throne as well. Where God sits, Jesus sits with him, and where Jesus sits, we sit in him. Because we're united to Jesus by faith, we're united to him in his death and in his resurrection, and we're united to him in his reign. Now, if you're anything like me, that sounds so good. It's almost blasphemous. But this is what it says. This is what Paul's saying. And he's saying, you want to know the depths of the riches of the grace that God has for you? Look at this. It should make you marvel. And here we see, actually, how the incarnation of Christ restores humanity to what was originally intended. This is how it was always meant to be. Human beings were made to rule. We, we read it in Genesis. You know, when God made man, he had a purpose that involved the rule of the earth. Like a human ruler appoints governors over various parts of his kingdom, so God appointed man to rule the earth under him. And we know that's God's plan because in Genesis 1.26, God says, let us make man in our image according to our likeness and let them have dominion. Or as the NIV said, let him rule over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air and over the cattle, over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. God didn't give up his kingship. He placed man underneath him to rule over the created order underneath him. But when Adam fell, 
he became a traitor to the high king. And he was thrown out of the kingdom. Because of this sin, man lost the ability to rule over creation well. Man still rules over creation. But he is a rebellious ruler. And we see this all around us in our ability to harness creation, to produce things and beautiful things, to to manufacture, to design and to create. All of that is an outworking of our creation as rulers. But now, in Christ, man is placed as a good ruler of creation once again. Principally in Christ, as the human high king, if you like, over all creation, but secondly in his people who are placed as redeemed princes and princesses, queens and kings, under the high king Jesus who's been placed over all. Here's the difference though. Jesus is worthy of that rule. He earned his thrones through his obedient suffering. We are not worthy of our throne. It is pure grace, pure gift given to us unworthy recipients through the work of Christ. So if you're not a Christian today, if, you, if you're someone who has not submitted to Christ's rule, here is another angle on God's work in Jesus that should drive you to believe. When Jesus calls us to follow him, he calls us to take up a cross, certainly. Uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer put it this way, when Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. I won't lie about that. The call to follow Christ is a call to die. But God is a God who specialises in raising the dead and exalting them. You see, we come to die at the feet of Christ, not so we can remain dead. That's not the goal. But so that we can be raised up to life and seated together with him in the heavenly places. Friends, we we often spend so much of our life seeking honour, seeking to be recognised. We chase our boss's praise. We chase our friend's approval. We chase the love and admiration of a spouse. But what we don't realise is that the way up is down. Come to Jesus and die. Take up your cross and follow him. Stop chasing all the things that you think will satisfy you and seek after Jesus. And as you die to your selfish and sinful desires and submit yourself to the reigning king, you will find that you're given life. More than that, you're given peace and hope and an inheritance and communion with God. You will be made a king or a queen in Christ's kingdom. But what does this look like for practice? Maybe you're a Christian here today and you're saying, oh, that's all well and good, but what does it look like? Well, God's made the world with hierarchy. We aren't all kings and queens in the same way over the same things. Some of us are kings of a business. We are to rule that business as a godly king. Some of us are given a section of a business. It's probably most of us. I was once given um, 
at, at BP, I worked for Castrol, one of their smaller organizations, and I was given all of their assets that they bought for customers to rule over. They bought pumps and reels and tanks and all sorts of things that, that the mechanics would keep oil in. And they gave all of that to me and they said, here is your kingdom. Go rule it. And my job as a Christian, as a redeemed king of Jesus' kingdom, was to rule it in a godly way, was to rule it well. Some of us are given families to rule. Some women are given homes. Some are given children. And this is, this is fascinating. In 1 Timothy 5, when Paul's talking about how women are to manage their homes, he doesn't call them homemakers like he does in Titus 2. In 1 Timothy 5, he calls them to manage their homes. And the word he uses is house despot. Right? Or a house ruler. So all you, all you women who are homemakers, you can ask that your husbands call you house despot instead. Okay? They're to rule their house. They're the king or queen of the homely domain. And that's what they're to do. They're to, to rule their house well as a godly queen under King Jesus. And we could go on for a long time, but if you want to know more of what this all looks like, you just read the rest of Ephesians. After telling us that Jesus is king and that we've been raised up to sit next to him, Paul then starts chapter 4 with this. He says, I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you to walk worthy of the calling to which you are called. He then proceeds to tell you how a king or a queen in Jesus' kingdom should rule. It's not like our typical idea of a king. In Jesus' kingdom, we rule with humility, exercising our gifts, speaking truth, being generous, walking in love, obeying your parents' children, loving your wife, respecting your husband, working hard at your job, and doing all of this while clothed in a royal outfit, the armour of God, as described in Ephesians 6. Our Saviour is a risen King. He rules over all things. Consider this truth, rejoice in this truth, and live as kings and queens in your corner of his great kingdom. Let's pray. Lord God, as we look at the power which you have displayed in Christ, Lord, we marvel. It's an incredible thing that you have done to, to place Christ where you have as the great king over all creation. Lord, we pray for any here who do not know Jesus, who have not submitted to him. Oh, Lord, we pray that they would see his rule, that he, they would see his position as king, and they would see the mercy that he offers us in commanding us to repent and believe. We pray that they would do that today. Lord, we pray for those who do know Christ. We pray that we would have our hearts lifted up as we dig into the riches of the grace that he has shown towards us. Lord, may we marvel in it. May we rejoice in it. May we have our eyes fixed on Christ and our hopes fixed in him as we go about our days. Help us, Lord, to live worthy of the calling to which we're called. In Jesus' name, amen.